Father, I come to you this morning and I ask you to open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Uh, This short little book that some have wondered why it's even in the Bible um, has so much in it for us. And I ask you to draw us into the, the narrative and to speak to us by your Holy Spirit who inspired it and placed it here. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. You know, there are some books in the Bible that uh, people have wondered uh, why, why they're there. Uh, where they belong, that some of them uh, don't even mention the name of God. And so uh, this kind of curiosity uh, runs around it. And Ruth is one of those uh, books that is four short chapters consisting primarily of a love story between Ruth and Boaz. And... uh, So people have raised the question, why did God include this book uh, in the Bible, and why does it behoove us to study it? And uh, I think the answer to that question is quite simple. From the New Testament, the Scripture says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, uh, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, prepared for every good work. Ruth fits into that category because the Holy Spirit has inspired this book. It belongs in Scripture because God put it there. Secondly, it has uh, survived within the canon of the Old Testament, that collection of uh, sacred writings that the Jews recognize as coming from God, it has survived as an important part of their history. And so it's more than just a love story. It's a love story plus. It has much more about it that uh, we need to look at this morning. I want to begin uh, just simply by... Uh, reflecting on the story of Ruth and tell you that story in case you haven't read Ruth recently or you're unfamiliar with it. Ruth takes place in the period of the Judges. You remember that 400-year period? We just finished the book of Judges last week. And it was about 400 years from the time that they entered the land of Canaan until... Uh, Israel's first king is uh, anointed on the scene. And in that period of time, the scripture says that God raised up various judges to rule and give guidance uh, to the people, or at least deliverance to the people. And toward the end of that period of time is when Naomi and Elimelech uh, come on the scene. A famine comes upon the land. Uh, There's all kind of different thoughts about what motivated Elimelech to take his family, his wife Naomi, and his sons Mahlon and Kilion, and go to the land of Moab. Some say that 
he demonstrated great leadership for his family and love for them by taking them to a place of relative safety where there was food to eat. Israel was going through a famine, and uh, people were starving. They were hungry, uh, running out of food, and uh, some say Elimelech um, took his family into a place where he knew there would be plenty. Others suggest that Elimelech uh, took his family in defiance of God, in rebellion to God, that rather than looking to the Lord to provide for them and to meet their needs, he went to a foreign land where he was told not to go, and uh, he went to this place where he hoped that uh, he would find uh, food and blessing and uh, be cared for in a land of people that were essentially serving other gods and opposed to the God of Israel. It's hard to say from our perspective what went on, but perhaps there's a clue that comes to us in the tragedy that strikes Naomi. Because they were in the land of Moab about ten years. And while they were there, Elimelech died. So dad dies. But also, Malon and Kilion marry foreign wives. This is a second problem, in that they become entangled within more or less the religion of the Moabites, which, like most of the Canaanites, was Baal worship. And so the two boys, uh, you might imagine, uh, break their mother's heart. Uh, rather than waiting to go back to Israel and marry among their own people, uh, they marry these two women. Now, I want you to put yourself in Naomi's shoes as a Christian mom and a, and a godly woman who finds that her family is going off the rails. What do you do? How do you deal with a situation like that? Well, I think you make the best of it. There's not a whole lot you can do uh, about what your grown kids do. Uh, Some people um, have ideas that... uh, in Scripture where it says that an elder's uh, family uh, must follow the Lord and his children are believing, that carries them all the way into adulthood. I don't think so. The word for child there is young child, and uh, we can influence and control and somewhat govern our young children. After all, they can't drive, they can't eat unless you feed them. Uh, They can't live anywhere unless you put a roof over their head. You have a fair amount of control over younger children. But as they get older, you begin to lose some of that control. Hopefully there's been some influence along the way. And hopefully they're learning to make decisions that are wise decisions. But that's not always the case. And I don't think God holds parents 
responsible for the behavior of their grown children because they're now on their own and they have to answer to God individually uh, regarding uh, whether they're going to serve and trust him or not. And so here's Naomi. Her husband has died and passed off the scene. She has two boys who have gone after foreign wives. How do you deal with that? What do you do? Well, in the culture of the day, the boys bring their wives home. Uh, They create kind of an extended family environment. So uh, if you think uh, daughters-in-law can get off the wire and create trouble, wait until they live under your roof. Um, And that's kind of the situation where they come home. And I am thinking that Naomi made the best of the situation. I think she began to talk to them about God's love for Israel, about his history in leading Israel. I think she talked to them about uh, the Exodus and, and the Red Sea and crossing the Jordan and how they ended up in the land of Canaan. It seems to me that Naomi began to share with these foreign women the true nature of the true God and began to reveal to them Uh, His love for his own people, his judgment, as well as his blessing, and how he guided his people. And so, in due time, and still we're within this ten-year period, both Malon and Kilion die themselves. Now Naomi is left with two daughters-in-law who have come from the Moabites. And she gets word that the famine is over back in Judah and that she can go back safely to Bethlehem, which is where she was from, and kind of recover a lifestyle that has passed her by. And so Naomi gathers what things she has and she begins to make the trip back to Bethlehem, back to Judah, uh, to live there among her own people. She says to um, Orpah and to Ruth, why don't you go back to your family? Go back to your parents. Go back to your gods. Go live in your land and serve your people. Perhaps God will deal with you and bless you and give you a husband. And I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. Naomi's feeling very much bereft uh, in her life. And she's, uh, she's just very sad. And she feels like she's returning home with nothing to show for it. She's an older woman now. Her sons are grown and died. Her husband is gone Maybe she'll find some way to live back in Bethlehem. At first they both say, no, we're going to stay with you. But Naomi insists. And so the scripture says that Orpah uh, kisses her by and goes back to her family. 
But Ruth clings to her and refuses to leave. And it's that famous passage that's used in a lot of weddings and uh, that people always quote from the book of Ruth. She says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I will live with you all the days of my life. And I will die where you die and be buried where you're buried. In other words, Ruth is saying, nothing can separate me from you. I am committed to you all the way to death. And I will let nothing come between us. And the interesting thing in the midst of that is she makes a tremendous statement of faith. She says, your God will be my God. This, for Ruth, is a declaration that she is leaving behind the false gods of the Moabites. And she is turning to the true God of Israel. And so, when Ruth, or when Naomi sees that Ruth is refusing uh, to leave her, she says no more about it. And together they journey to Bethlehem. It so happens, remember why they went back? They heard the famine was over. They get to Bethlehem right at the time of the harvest. And uh, they come upon the fields that are ready to be gleaned. And they see all the workers. And there was a law of Moses that the Israelites followed where God said, For the poor and destitute and widows among you, When you harvest your grain, you are to make only one pass through the field. And whatever's left, you are to leave. And those who are destitute and in great need can come behind, and they have permission under the Mosaic Law to to gather what is remaining. And so around the edges of the field and lying on the uh, surface and also uh, not cut uh, by the scythe on the first pass, they can take that for themselves and that'll be for sustenance for them. So Ruth says to Naomi, I'd like to go out today and I would like to uh, go and collect whatever I can from the fields that are at harvest. And it so happens that as she begins to glean within the fields, that she comes upon the one that is owned by Boaz. And now we're introduced to Boaz. And Boaz is an interesting fellow. He, he's a bit of an older man. We don't know how old. He could be 40. He could be 50. Maybe he's 35. I don't know. Uh, he's not 19 or 20. I know that. He's an older man. He's a wealthy man. He's uh, one of the wealthiest in the whole region. He's kind of like the number one farmer uh, around Bethlehem. And uh, he has uh, fields and he has servants and he has uh, all of these blessings that he has accrued. But he doesn't have a wife. And we're introduced to him because he happens to notice Ruth. And he asks his leading servant, 
who is this woman? And the servant says, this is the Moabitess that came back with Naomi. And Boaz says to him, make sure that you leave a little extra and don't uh, cause any harm to come to her and make sure that she is protected and that she's not molested out in the field. This is right out of our day, okay? You don't have to go back 3,000 years to know what's going on here. And uh, because she's a foreigner, she would be um, kind of looked down upon. She would be despised. Uh, She would not be considered to have great value uh, among the people. And the chances of her being abused or mistreated were significant. Boaz steps in the middle and he says, I want you to make sure that she's cared for. And then he says to Ruth, he says, I want you to hang out with my maidservants. I want you to glean with them. And when you're thirsty, I want you to come uh, to the water my servants have drawn. And drink. And I don't want you gleaning in any other field. Don't go anywhere else. I want you to stay here and we'll see that you're taken care of. Well, it so happens that by the end of the day, Ruth works all the way to the end of the day. And the scripture says that she beats out the, the uh, barley that she has uh, collected. And lo and behold, the grain is equal to one ephah. You say, what in the world is an ephah? At least that's what I said, so I looked it up again. And it's a whole bushel. You know what a bushel of grain is? It's like 37 liters. I mean, that's a lot of grain. And Boaz made sure that she got a bountiful supply. And she takes this home to Naomi and she tells her the story. And Naomi, suddenly uh, her whole attention is captured by this story because it's almost like she had forgotten. But now she says, Boaz is one of our closest relatives. Um, he was one of the relatives of Elimelech, and he is of great reputation and wealth in this area. This is just amazing that you should happen to come upon the field of Boaz. Well, I don't think that just happened. I think God was behind that motivation that she ended up there. And so time goes along. Uh, and the harvest continues, and finally one night, it's kind of like the end of the harvest time, and it's time to celebrate the bounty that God has given, and it says that uh, Boaz uh, ate uh, some of the of the harvest and enjoyed it and had some wine to drink, and he was tired and sleepy, and he goes to bed out there in the field with his workers. And Naomi says, Ruth... Here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to go back to the area where the celebration is and uh, don't reveal yourself. But when everyone's gone to sleep, go and lay down by the feet of 
the man Boaz, your our near relative. Now, unless you understand the custom of the time, you may think something else is up here. But there's nothing untoward going on about what's happened, uh, what's happening. To cover a person with the hem of your garment was to symbolically bring them under the authority of your household. And Ruth is being instructed by Naomi to go and lay at his feet. And during the night, he stirs and realizes that there's a woman laying at his feet. And it's like, uh, now what? And she says, please cover me with the hem of your garment. What she's asking is, I am willing to be your wife. And I am willing for you to redeem Elimelech's field and property under Naomi. You can redeem that. And I will be your wife and you can own the possessions of Elimelech. And Boaz, interestingly enough, is delighted. He says to her, there's only one thing standing in the way. There is another kinsman that is closer than I in the inheritance. And we have to talk to him first. I want you to see that Boaz is a godly man. That he is a man of honor and uprightness. And here's this foreign woman laying at his feet at the harvest time. And he's slept off the wine by now. And he's got his senses about him. And he says, I'm happy to do this. He had been watching her for a while. He was in love. But he said, there is a closer redeemer. And we have to talk to him first. Because he has the rightful position to purchase you and the fields of Elimelech for himself. Now the idea was, in case I forgot to mention, the idea was that you would take on the wife of the deceased... And that you would raise up children to the name of the first husband or to the owner of the possessions. That you would raise up children and they would continue the inheritance. Because you could not permanently buy property in Israel. It could not be yours forever. Uh, Even if someone uh, got in debt to you and had to... Uh, sell off their land or whatever and become an indentured servant to pay off their debt, the, the fact was that at some point in time it could be redeemed by a family member or you could wait till the year of Jubilee and it would revert back to the original family ownership because God gave them the land as an inheritance. And so what's going on here is, is that Ruth's 
husband, Naomi's son, has his father's inheritance at stake. But with the land comes the bride. And whoever buys the land has to take the wife, the former wife, and raise up children to her deceased husband so that he will continue the family lineage. So here's the scenario. The next day, Boaz goes and sits in the gate. The gate was like the court. He brings the elders of the city together, gets ten of them together to sit in the gate as witnesses and judges. And the closer kinsman is coming by and he says, friend, come over here. I have a matter I want to speak to you about here in the presence of all of the uh, elders of the gate. And so he comes over and he says, it has come to my attention that you are the rightful heir of Elimelech's property that belonged to his sons. You're the rightful heir. And it is your privilege to redeem that land. If you don't want it, I want it. But if you do want it, you have the first option. And so he says, well, wow, that sounds like a good idea to me. I'll take it. And he says, well, now understand what you're doing. Because there's a little catch. And that is you have to take the Moabitess as your wife. Because she goes with the land. And he says, well, I can't do that. I'm not sure why he couldn't do that. I don't know if he didn't want to be associated with a foreigner. I didn't know if he didn't want to be connected to Ruth the Moabitess. I, I, don't, I don't know if he had uh, other wives and he already had his, uh, you know, his fill. I don't know what the deal was. But at any rate, he says, I, I can't take Ruth. And so Boaz says, well, I'll tell you what then. In the presence of the elders, I want to buy the property and I will take Ruth. And the elders say, so be it. So the kinsman takes off his shoe and throws it at Boaz. And that's the symbol that he has uh, given up and forever uh, neglected or given up his duty or opportunity to purchase the land. Boaz accepts the sign. The elders agree that it's appropriate. And the next thing you know, there's a wedding going on. And Ruth has found a wonderful husband, one of the wealthiest men in town, uh, to bless her and to bless Naomi and uh, to be her husband for the rest of her days. It's fascinating when you look at the story because Naomi leaves with a husband and two sons and loses everything in the land of Moab. She comes back as far as she's concerned with nothing to show for it. But she has a daughter-in-law who is committed to her 
with a love and a bond that is beyond imagination. And out of that relationship, God begins to bless Naomi and to bless Ruth. And as a result, this family union, this marriage takes place. And Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer. When I read the story of Ruth, besides it being a very touching, and you can fill in all the blanks, uh, this is a very touching romance, as Boaz spots her day one, and his heart is drawn to her. But it also gives us an insight into God's divine providence. Because interestingly enough, Matthew tells us that there are four women in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. First of all, and when you look at the lineage of these women, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. First of all is Tamar. Do you remember the story of Tamar? Judah had a couple of sons. They weren't very nice. Uh, they were somewhat uh, rebellious and wicked, and God dealt with them. Uh, and actually, uh, God took their lives away, and uh, so there wasn't anyone but a young son left, and Tamar was left a widow. And remember the, what I just told you about the kinsman redeemer and raising up sons and whatever, taking over in the uh, family structure, if the brother died and left a wife, the next one in line was supposed to take her and continue to raise up a family in his brother's name so that his line would not just evaporate. And uh, that went on a couple of times, and so Judah had promised Tamar, um, well, within the basis of their uh, culture, that the next son would, would be her husband, but he didn't want anything else to happen. And he didn't want Tamar in the family. So you remember what Tamar did? She dressed up like a prostitute and sat by the road, and she lured Judah into this prostitute relationship and Judah's out of money at the moment, so he leaves his ring and his staff and uh, as a pledge that he's going to return the next day and, and pay her for her services. If you never thought the Bible was down to earth, boy, let me tell you, you better read it again. <laughs> and so the next day Judah comes back and guess what? She's nowhere to be found. And he starts to ask around among the guys, you know, where's that prostitute that was by the street? What prostitute? Who are you talking about? We haven't seen anybody. Yeah, she was sitting right out there. No, never seen anybody like that. And then he begins to feel like he's been had. Except she has the staff and the ring. And it's like, now what am I going to do? Well, he just pretends that nothing ever happened, goes back home. Tamar gets out of her 
garb and goes back to dressing normally until she starts to show she's pregnant. And Judah is ready to take her out and stone her to death because she has played the harlot. And he's going to deal with her. And so he brings her out and she shows up and says, The man who caused this situation owns this staff and this ring. Does this look familiar, Judah? And all of a sudden he realizes that he has betrayed his trust and put her in a position that was untenable. And now she has turned the tables on him. And as he puts it, she is more righteous than I. Actually, neither one of them were doing very well at that moment. But that's his uh, take on the matter. Tamar ends up being the mother of Perez, who is in the line of David. Fascinating. Next comes Rahab. Do you remember Rahab from um, uh, who, what? Jericho. Jericho, yes, but I'm trying to think of the name of the book. I need to go join my wife's Sunday school class. Joshua, thank you, Joshua, yes. Uh, so Rahab's home is in the wall of Jericho, and she's a prostitute in Jericho. But she's heard about the Israelites, and she's come to believe that their God is supreme to what's going on in the land of Canaan. And she hides the spies. It was a perfect place to hide because it was not unreasonable to expect them to show up there. And she hides them and she lets them out after the uh, people chasing them have gone. Actually, she misleads them. And they give her a promise. The promise is that when the walls of Jericho topple, she and her family will be spared. Hang a scarlet ribbon in the wall and we will recognize your household and protect you. She married Salmon, and he became, and he became, she became the mother of Boaz. You see what's happening here? God is bringing Rahab into the line of Boaz. And then there's Ruth, who marries Boaz and becomes the mother of Obed who becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of David. And then there's Bathsheba, and we know her story, and how David uh, went off the path himself, murdered her husband, in essence, and ultimately took her as a wife, and Bathsheba becomes the mother of Solomon. It's interesting that these four women fit into the line of the Messiah because it brings to us a very significant message. 
that even though Jesus is in fact the Lion of Judah and the eternal king after King David, the fact is that in his line are sinners and prostitutes and people who have committed evil and murderers and liars. And when you put the whole line together, you have a string of people that bring us to the birth of Jesus, that give a history that not only includes the Jews, but includes Gentiles. And not only includes righteous people, but includes people who have strayed from God. It doesn't mean that they lived forever in rebellion, but they had significant problems in their lives, and they had behaviors and departures from the past, from the path that were terrible in any sense of the word. And yet they end up in the line of Jesus Christ. And there's a message in there for us that our relationship with Jesus Christ is rooted in the love of God and not in our goodness. Were God to have rejected every person who had ever failed, no one would be in his family. But God, in his tender mercy, brings together those who repent and turn to him. And and if you look at the story, uh, Tamar is following the law. Rahab turns to God in faith and becomes a follower of the God of Israel. Ruth converts to the God of Israel and puts, puts away the gods of the Moabites. Bathsheba repents and David in, in his own uh, bitter sorrow repents and turns back to God. And God uses these people in powerful ways to bring about, ultimately, the line from which Jesus the Messiah came. Don't ever think that your life is unrecoverable. Don't ever think that there's no redemption for you. Don't ever believe for a heartbeat that you have sinned beyond grace and that you cannot find a way back to God because God will always make a way for those who turn to Him. And one of the most amazing things about God's goodness to us is that He can even turn our failures and our foibles into good for those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. God is able to take every situation and bring blessing out of it. In the darkest of our hours, God is able to bring light. Naomi felt like her life, for all intents and purposes, was over. 
And then this faithful daughter-in-law marries the wealthiest man in Bethlehem. And Naomi becomes once again blessed and fulfilled by being a part of that family as God meets her in a wonderful way. There is no tragedy that God cannot turn around for blessing. And there's no failure on our part that God cannot turn around for good if we put our trust in Him. Where are you this morning in your relationship with God? Do you feel close to Him? Are you aware of His love for you? Do you feel like you've failed Him and that somehow or another there's no way back? Do you feel like you don't belong in the family of God? Look at the history of our Lord Jesus. There's always a way back. There's always an opening that God makes in the darkest of our nights to come through to the light. There's always a way out for those who love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. I encourage you this morning, no matter where you are in your relationship with God, if you feel that you have somehow disappointed Him in some significant way, and you may have, I encourage you to turn to Him today to give Him your heart, to come back home, to let Him turn the sadness of your life and the tragedy into blessing and to redeem and recover the thing which was lost. God is able to do that. God gives us that opportunity. Father, we thank you this morning for this beautiful story of Ruth and Boaz. We thank you for the wonderful restoration of Naomi. We thank you that your word does not mince words or sugarcoat life, that you tell us the truth and you reveal to us the reality of our human nature and our proneness to wander from you. And yet in the midst of that, you make known to us that you yourself have made a way home through the cross. Not just for unbelievers who have never trusted you, but for your children who have wandered from the path. You have made a way home and a way back. And we thank you that you can take our failure and our shame and that you can turn it around into a blessing for good if we give you our lives without reservation.
And so, Lord, I pray today that you would guide us in that commitment. In Jesus' name, amen.